Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Finance Bible Podcast. We are your hosts as always, Oscar and Zeke, and please note that nothing in this podcast should ever be considered as personal financial advice. And if personal financial advice is what you are after, then please get in touch so that we can connect you with the correct professionals to make sure that the job is done correctly. Enjoy the show. On today's episode, we have a very exciting topic, one of our favourites, a little trip to the past, you could say. Leverage, what it is, how it works, everything about it. You joined with myself, Zeke, fellow co-host Oscar. Welcome, mate. Mate, it is always good to be doing a podcast on a Thursday morning, especially leveraging. Uh, It is a throwback, our second, actually no, our third overall or original episode was on this so we're just having a bit of a revamp so people may be thinking well what is what is leveraging what does it what does that even mean i'll give a pretty generic simple definition and you can confirm or deny if you agree zeke but basically it is using money you don't have to catapult into further assets so borrowing debt to invest is my short simple sharp definition now, Zeke. I like the way you've used the word catapult there. It's, yeah. it's actually a really good term. Oh, um, thank you very much. Yeah, basically leverage. You use money that you don't actually have, as in someone else's, the bank's money, to go ahead and leverage into an asset. There's a few things to break down there. First of all, what is it actually useful for? What is leverage good for? We'll get into that a bit later. And when we say leverage into an asset... What do we mean by that? I tell you what we don't mean. We don't mean credit cards. We don't mean cars unless there's a good tax write-off to it, which um, it's a different conversation. We don't mean a home. You can leverage into a home. I understand some people want a home. You've got a family, that kind of thing going on behind the scenes. But when we're talking about leveraging into a good asset, we're talking more of the investment class. For example, shares or investment properties, mainly investment properties, and anything that will actually help you generate an income long term. Yeah, exactly right. Like an income producing asset is really how you can benefit from the leveraging conversation. And people may say borrow money for holidays. That does fall into the bad category, as you mentioned before, Zeke. I actually know a couple of people in the past who have taken out uh, loans to use for a holiday and they're still paying them back 10 years later. So, That is a tough conversation to have. But Robert Kiyosaki, our favorite author, speaker, investor, loves leverage. He borrowed 300 million US dollars in 2008 to invest in real estate, money he didn't have, but he used it to catapult into investment properties. And now he's a billionaire. He's one of the wealthiest men in the world. He's got how many properties do you have, Zeke? Was it over 15,000? He, he does have over 15,000 properties. Every single property as well of those 15,000 generating him an income. So and he literally just lives off the rental income. But he, in 2008, when the GFC happened, he saw an opportunity to borrow the money as all the prices were crashing down. And now he's the one laughing. I'll say a little quote that Kiyosaki has mentioned about leveraging and it goes like this people without leverage 
work for those with leverage? We'll just, just let it sink in. Yeah, dwell on that for a minute. People without leverage work for those with leverage. What does that mean? Simply, those of whom have leveraged into an investment property, for example, own the investment property, they rent it out to people. The people who are renting, generally speaking, this is a, um, a broad statement, generally the people who are renting are then paying and working for those of whom have leveraged into that investment property. Oscar, you know I'm a numbers man. Our fans, you know I'm a numbers man. I love numbers. What do you got for so today? Actually, what have I got for today? What's on the menu there? Yeah. I've whipped up a little something special. I've got two examples, nice and easy, just to show what the actual power of leverage does. I've kept everything pretty well similar in terms of the yields and the growth and that kind of thing, just to paint a clear picture. So let's say you've got 200K in cash. Throw that in the shares. They pay a 4% dividend, give or take, and they're growing at something like you know, 5% a year, just to keep it really easy. What happens there? Over 10 years, you end up with about 440 grand, give or take. Again, these numbers are rounded. I'm doing it very simple to show an example. If you go to the next example, we've got that 200K. We've used it to leverage into, let's say, an investment property. Now, that investment property pays you 4% of rent, and we've done a 25% deposit. So we've now got an $800,000 asset as opposed to the original 200,000. So we've borrowed 600 grand, done the 25% deposit, and it's growing at 5% per year as well. Over a 10-year period, everything kept the same. The numbers, are they're interesting. I'll put it that way. We get to about just shy of 1.8 million. So example one, no leverage, 200K, $440,000, give or take. Example two, leveraging that money, keeping everything the same, about 1.8 million. You basically multiply your money by four, you multiply the result by four, and if you keep on going and keep on going, that obviously eventuates into completely absurd numbers. Like if you just go 25 years just for a bit of fun, you end up at 4.6 million with the, the leverage strategy, whereas if you do it the other way, you only end up at 1.1 million. Think about that. There you go. Your numbers uh, never fail to impress Zeke. And following on from that, that's basically just one leverage um, strategy. A lot of wealthy investors um, with the property side of things use continue to recycle the debt to get into another investment, then another investment, then another investment. And then all of a sudden they may have 10 plus investment properties, paying them around 300 to 400,000 per year in income. In my mind, if the wealthy investors do it, like they're literally telling you how they've you know, amassed their money, how they become wealthy, and the common, the common, um, the word is leverage. They all use leverage to build their wealth, so it's a bit of a no-brainer in uh, in my mind. And there is two different types of leverage: personal leverage in your your personal world, um, and you can also leverage in your super fund. So personal leverage is easier um, as opposed to the superannuation because generally speaking you have your whole income to actually service the debt with your super um, it is in a whole it's a whole completely different world so smsfs um, we can only invest in property through a self-managed super fund 
that they generally um, they don't really look at your income. They look at more of your contributions to your super. So if you have steady contributions coming to your super fund, that's fine. But for individuals who generally are self-employed and don't pay themselves contributions, you may find it quite difficult to leverage in a self-managed super fund if that's something you're wanting to do. Yeah, there's a few differences when you move from personal to self-managed. Obviously, you've touched on the first one there, servicing. You said it perfectly, personal world, you've got your total income that can be used to service a loan, whereas in super, it's based on your deposits and then obviously the rental yield too. In terms of deposit, there is a difference. You're normally talking roughly 20 to 30% deposit. This can go up to 35%. It can have a lot of different variances, but they're the averages just to give you all an idea. Whereas in your personal world, you can go a lot lower. In terms of a liquidity buffer as well, you've got to maintain, I mean, industry standard is roughly 10 to 15% liquidity buffer. So what that means is the total amount of value of funds in your fund, you need to have 10% of that aside, not in the property. So it can be in like shares or as a liquidity buffer so that if anything goes wrong, you've got that there. In saying all of that, um, investing in super, I think it's a genius idea. As young people, speaking for Don and myself and probably a lot of the other people in um, our age bracket and giving a bit of perspective on what you should and shouldn't do or what we think you should and shouldn't do, we would both be focusing on our personal world first as that's a lot easier and quicker for us at our age. And then if we go to super world is basically as you get older and you've already focused on your personal world, then it may be worth coming back and visiting super after that. So, for example, if you've done what you can in your personal world, you've leveraged, you've got everything going on there, you kind of maxed out at what you can do, then it might be worthwhile going, all right, well, let's focus on building up the super now and getting that going. Generally speaking, and again, very general, you need roughly 200, 220 grand in a self-managed fund between you and your partner or you and a few mates or whatever to actually be able to invest in a property in a self-managed fund. Anything to add to that, Don? Um, no, I think that's that's good. Focus on the personal side first um, because at the end of the day, you can only really access the funds in your super um, at a minimum age of 60. It does change pending on the year you were born. Um, some may be a bit later, et cetera. But generally speaking, it's around 60 that you can only access the funds. So if you are in your 20s and 30s, for example, or even 40s, it is probably more appropriate to focus on your personal world if you haven't already and build that up to a, a um, an asset base that you want to possibly you know, live off in retirement. And then once your super's built up, you can also leverage into um, an asset through your super fund when you're a little bit older. So that's... That, that's a general a general way of doing it as well. When we're talking about comfortability of debt and stuff, like just going back a little bit to when we we're talking about the personal side and how I was talking about investing in a home versus investing in um, like an investment property, the debt is very different. So the debt when you buy a home and why we don't class it as an asset, because you actually, that debt doesn't do anything good for you. Like you've leveraged into it, but you're not getting rent on it. You're not getting tax deductions for it. You're just tied up and it's not helping you in any kind of way aside from mental and emotional help. Whereas if you invest in the property and you tenant it and you've got the loan against it, there's a lot of interest deductions you get. 
you get rental income from it. And the Aussie mentality has always been, you know, let's buy a home, renovate it, and then in retirement we'll watch shows on renovating homes and then we'll probably downsize and renovate and upgrade and do it all again and again and again. So property is always going to be um, the forefront of everyone. Everyone needs something to live in. I just choose to rent, as does Don at the moment. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting topic. It's a whole different topic, that one, really. But it is funny that the whole mindset of Australians um, and and people around the world as well, that you kind of have to buy a home. It's If you don't have a home, if you don't own a home, you, you, you're deemed a bit of a loser. But it's not the case. Like, imagine living where you want to live while you have assets working in the background and paying you an income. So, you know, investing in property, they're paying for themselves, you're getting rental income and you rent in the best places you want to live. Like you may want to live up in the Gold Coast one year or you may want to go to Sydney. Or you have the freedom to do that. But if you're if you're locked into a big mortgage, you own your occupier mortgage that you're paying, you're not going to go over somewhere else and live there for a year if you really wanted to because you're now married to this mortgage for 30 years. But if you rent where you want and invest on the side, a bit of rent investing we call it, you have all this freedom and you really won't be wasting your your, your best years of your life by just trying to make the repayments. So that's that's our mindset. Generally, a lot of our clients have that mindset as well. But, um, yeah, it's just trying to break free out of that traditional traditional mindset of, you know, you've got to go to school, uni, buy a house and settle down. We've completely changed. This topic is genuinely one of the most interesting topics that we do. And generally speaking, it's very complicated too. So anything that we've said, make sure you bear in mind it is very general in nature. If you want to learn more about it, if you want to explore it further, please get in touch with us. You already know how to do that. Aside from that, we'll catch you all next time. Ciao.